Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller, and I'm in the studios of Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. On Thursday, we talk about different ideas of American identity, how the way we see ourselves and our connections with each other are being influenced by how polarized we are politically. Tonight, Why some of us choose candidates who would seem to be at odds with our own economic interests. Now, here's a good example. President Trump went to Louisville, Kentucky this week to build support for the health care bill that's supposed to replace Obamacare. Listen to what he said. Obamacare has been a complete and total catastrophe and it's getting worse and worse by the day. And yet you watch the fake media, the fake news, and they try and build it up. It's a disaster, fellas. It's a disaster. Now, some of those Kentuckians in that arena that you can hear booing, they get their health insurance because Kentucky expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. In fact, more than 500,000 low-income Kentuckians have health insurance thanks to an expanded Medicaid and the ACA. And that Medicaid expansion is going to be cut back if the GOP can pass its health care legislation. And that House vote is now scheduled for tomorrow morning. Here's one more thing to think about. Even as President Trump's overall approval ratings have plummeted nationally, they've been in the mid-30s, Kentucky is holding firm. A significant majority give Donald Trump high marks. So what gives? Why are the very voters who could lose health insurance and other safety net programs under President Trump, such fans of him and his policies. Two guests tonight, and your insight and experience with this is really important to the conversation. If you live in a state that went strongly for President Trump, or even a rural county that did, what do you think when you hear people saying you voted against your own self-interest? And what don't people understand about why you'd support a president who might take some things away from you? So I'm looking for people from red states, red counties. If you live in a state that went strongly for President Trump or even a county that did in the middle, perhaps, of a blue state. What do you think when people when you hear people saying, well, you voted against your own self-interest? And what don't people understand about why you'd support a president who might take some of those programs away from you? Here's the phone number, 844-745-8255. It's 844-745-8255-TALK. And you can reach me on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M, as in Minnesota PR, and use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. Our guest tonight, Jeff Guo, covers economics and domestic policy for The Washington Post, and he joins us today from Washington. Jeff, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Sarah Kenzior is a cultural anthropologist and a writer based in Missouri, and she's been writing about these issues, and she joins us from St. Louis. And Sarah, welcome to you. It's good to have you on the show. 
Oh, thanks for having me on. Jeff, uh, to come back to you here, I, I know you've done a lot of reporting in rural places that supported President Trump. And you've looked at some of these policies that would affect some of those voters. And I was reading what you were writing about the Appalachia Regional Commission, because it seems like a great example of this. And I know there are some governors that are pretty upset about the idea that it's going to be cut. What does it do and why is that a good example of what we're talking about? So this was such a surprising part of his budget. And to set the scene, we have to go back to the campaign trail where Donald Trump got so much of his support from rural areas in America. He spoke to this rural consciousness. He told people that he was going to stand up for them against all the elites and all of the, you know, the coastal people. And then out comes this budget that he proposed. And in it, the Appalachian Regional Commission is completely eliminated. And this is an organization, a, a federal agency that gets about $146 million a year to sprinkle on to these places where a lot of rural folk need money to help them fix their sewers, build roads, uh, get job training. Um, there's a, it helps fund a school in Kentucky where people can learn to become drone operators. It funds programs to help uh, former coal miners find different occupations. And so it does all of these things that are supposed to help uh, rural America And um, in Trump's budget, it just completely disappeared. I mean, one of the things we should say here, Jeff, is it's not it's not just a safety net program for when people lose their jobs. I mean, they can actually prove that they create jobs. And and I saw your your calculation here. Twenty three thousand jobs, eight dollars per federal dollar in private investment flows in, in through this commission. Right, exactly. And if you want to talk about bringing back manufacturing jobs, well, all the advanced manufacturing jobs these days, you need a lot of training. And that's what the Appalachian Regional Commission helps fund. If you want to talk about building infrastructure, infrastructure is a lot of what that program also does. Because in these rural places, you need roads if you want businesses to come. You need pipes that work. You need sewers that aren't overflowing. And all of these things are things that the federal government tries to provide these communities. Um, and so it's, it's, it's strange. It's, it seems like a strange oversight that the budget wouldn't consider putting some money toward that. Sarah, there must be examples of this in Missouri, too. Can you think of any? Um, it, examples of malfeasance on part of the government? No, 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 yeah. no, no. no. <laughs> I, examples of where there are programs that when you look at this budget that are going to be cut, that benefit the very voters in your region that supported him. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing quite as um, specific as the case just made that pertains to this region. But of course, Missouri, like every state, is going to be affected by uh, cuts to health care, cuts to public schools, cuts to environmental safety and things like clean water. And, you know, we were already struggling um, with a lot of these issues. And a lot of people um, in this region were already frustrated uh, by the lack of services, by the expense of things um, like health care. And so, Yes. Um, you know, this. these policies are going to harm everybody, whether you voted for Trump or not. I think that Democrats and some independents, Sarah, assume that rural voters don't have the facts. Well, that isn't necessarily true, is it? No. And also, you know, I, I think it's wrong to conflate Trump voters with rural voters. I mean, yes, rural areas did vote 
disproportionately um, for Trump, but also a lot of, you know, city and especially suburban people voted for him as well. Um, I don't think that Trump has any particular insight into rural populations. And I also think you can't really lump rural uh, populations in this country uh, together. You know, Mm -hmm. it's very different to live in a rural area in Missouri than in, you know, Montana or Texas or anywhere else. But, you know, Trump is someone who, you know, for example, and he was speaking to um, coal miners, you know, hired a Dutch model to portray one in his campaign ads. He doesn't actually have, uh, you know, the common touch to the common man. Um, So I'm not surprised that his actual policies, when he passes them, uh, reflect that distance. Your your point on this, that rural voters are not monolithic, is really well taken. Mm. I think what I was asking, Jeff, is I think there's an assumption from Democrats and the left that you can lump rural voters together and they don't have the facts. And that's why when they're facing program cuts, it doesn't matter because they still support President Trump. I think this is the the conundrum that Democrats haven't haven't really figured out. What do you think? Well, one thing I want to point out is that in all these Appalachian countries or Appalachian counties where this program is getting cut, they you know, they went for um, they were they went Republican in the last presidential election, but they went even more Republican this presidential election. So I think that there is some particular appeal that Donald Trump holds for them. And uh, but I totally agree with Sarah. It's not it's not a monolithic group at all, and it's maybe not fair to talk about rural people that way. But um, but to your other point, I think that it's a it's unfair to say that rural people don't have the facts because you know what? No one has all the facts. And a lot of liberals also don't fully understand issues. That's not how people think about politics. People think about politics in terms of um, group identity. A lot of times they think about policies in terms of, you know, it's not just what do I think about the policy because policy is really complicated. No one's supposed to, you know, it's hard for anyone to understand it, right? But you think about what do the people that I care about think about this policy. What do people in my community think about this policy? What do people on the news that I watch, which is not necessarily NPR, uh, what do they think about this policy, right? And so there's a lot of that. And it's not not that people don't have the facts. It's that people are having different discussions. And maybe that, maybe these discussions are drifting farther and farther apart in America. I I think we have a caller on the line who really reflects what you've just said, Jeff, to Mm -hmm. Jesse in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Hey, Jesse, hi, and thanks for waiting. Hey, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay, tell me how you're thinking about this. Well, what I called to say is that um, you said, you know, how our voters feel like they're voted against themselves. And it's it's really a mixed bag for me because I'm pro-environment. I'm uh, I'm pro-Medicaid and food stamps. My kids are all on Medicaid. I have been on food stamps in the past. I may be in the future. Who knows what will happen? Um, I'm pro-immigration. But I'm also pro-life, and I just had to prioritize and go with, you know, the, the biggest thing to me, and that's pro-life. And I was really torn having to vote against myself like that. And But like I said, it's a mixed bag, and I had to. Jesse, what do you think, when you talk about this conflict that you feel on the issues, what do you think people mm-hmm. don't understand about that and the, and the fact that in the end you voted for Donald Trump? Uh just because I, I felt like Trump was pro-life and, and he was going to support that policy and he was the best choice for that. I really liked Ted Cruz initially, but um, I, I know Hillary did not agree with my morals, so mm-hmm. I had to vote okay. for Trump, even though he's probably going to 
got the EPA and, and cut my kids' Medicaid and all the rest of it, uh, pro-life is just the most important policy to me. All right. So, Sarah, what do you hear in that? Um, that actually reflects what not only people I interviewed when I was covering the campaign said, but, you know, what some people in my family said um, who were pro-life when, uh, you know, my sister is trying to talk them out of uh, voting for Trump and you know, <laughs> managed, managed to succeed. But they left that box blank, um, you know, for the same reason that they just couldn't uh, support a, a pro-choice candidate. So I think this is, you know, pretty common. Um, you know, I think this issue is one that, um, you know, often, you know, as we're seeing right here, people will vote on this issue alone um, outweighing others. So um, I think that's sometimes left out of the conversation, though, you know, when we discuss why people voted for Trump. Sarah, I think it's pretty interesting. And I didn't know this about you, that this this played out in your own family. Yeah, I mean, most of my relatives, um, you know, are, are Democrats voted for Clinton, but I've got some Republican relatives who are, you know, really struggling with uh, the issue of Donald Trump because he's not a typical Republican. And, you know, they were very put off by this. But especially for relatives I have who are, you know, devout Catholics, uh, you know, that this was an issue, the, especially, you know, the abortion issue. Yeah, I mean, Jeff, this points out what both you and Sarah have said already, that it is not a cold kind of dissecting decision when you're making a decision about a candidate. You know, you don't Mm -hmm. just step through the policies and go, well, that brings me to this candidate. I think from the outside looking in, that's I mean, you hear that kind of rhetoric again from the left. How can you support this guy? Misunderstanding the emotional element of this, too. What what would you say about that, Jeff? It's not even just emotional. I feel like calling it emotional maybe downplays uh, how we all think about politics. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, all the things that Obama did. Um, a lot of liberals didn't agree with that, but they thought he was the best choice for the time. Mm-hmm. And they uh, disagreed sometimes, you know, vehemently in public, but, you know, they still, in the end, more or less supported him. And I feel like that's the same thing that's going on with Trump voters now. I think many of them, I mean, you see his approval ratings. They're not great right now. But I think many of his supporters... See, see it as a compromise, and they see he's maybe struggling, struggling a little bit now, but they also have faith that he's going to carry out the bulk of what he promised. From Iowa on Twitter, a listener says, farming states voted for Trump, Trump campaigns dumping TPP. Those farming states that voted for him are hit hard financially. Yeah. If you've just tuned in, this is a conversation on Indivisible about trying to understand this this rhetoric, this discussion that's going on between different parts of the country and different voters who supported different candidates about how vote how some voters appear to have voted against their own self-interest and why there's so much more to the story. And I'm asking you, as Jeff Guo from The Washington Post joins us and Sarah Kenzior, uh, she's a writer and an anthropologist based in Missouri, join us. I'm asking you, if if you are one of those voters, if, if you live in a state that went strongly for President Trump or even a rural county that did, what do you think when you hear people saying that you voted against yourself, uh, your own self-interest? I mean, what do you think is misunderstood about that? 844-745-8255. And I'm on Twitter at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M, as in Minnesota PR, and use the hashtag Indivisible Radio to the phones to Melissa. Good. In Lexington, Kentucky. Melissa, I was really hoping somebody would call from Kentucky tonight since we since we were talking about that. Welcome. 
Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I, what I was saying is I worked for um, a social welfare program. And so I was privy to a lot of people's financial backgrounds. And so I knew that they were on all of these programs, yet they were they were all for Trump. And and a lot of it, I think, was like his businessman image, his, you know, the beautiful wife and being very successful. And I would kind of be like, I mean, you know, he went bankrupt a lot. Right. And they're like, oh, yeah, because he's smart. And, you know, his wife's an immigrant, right? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. His wife's an immigrant, but she did it the right way. And I mean, they just they had an answer for everything. And a lot of the people I worked with, they were not for Trump, but they would have they would have not have argued or said anything differently. You know, and there are a ton of people who benefited from the, the Affordable Care Act. I mean, people who were crying to me when they when it wasn't just Trump. Um, our governor was we had a governor that was elected. Um, we had Bashir and then they got a Republican governor. Right. It right. was um, Bevins. And so when everybody was all for him because he was a veteran. But then so because I also I I um, volunteered at the VA also. And so a lot of the men, their wives were on the Affordable They You know, they benefited from the Affordable Care Act because they got their free VA, you know, benefit Mm -hmm. and i was like well if you know why would you vote for him if you know he's not for the programs you need and it was because he was a veteran you know they were only going to vote for a veteran they were only going to vote for a man it didn't you know it's it it's just a very backward state i'm from new york and i've lived there for 15 years so uh, melissa it's different is it true that your your husband also voted for donald trump Well, I think he would not have admitted if he didn't, because he was in the military, and we had so many discussions. You know, a lot of his, he's not in the the military anymore, but a lot of his friends, you know, we still go out to dinner with them. And I'm, you know, I'm very liberal, and I'm very mouthy when it comes to politics, (laughs) because I'm very educated in politics. And he would just sit there and not say anything. And I'm like, I know that you can't think this stuff. But he would never have said otherwise. So we we never discussed it because we love each other. Yes. And you put the marriage and the love ahead of the politics, which is kind of what you have to do. Melissa, thank you. Really good to hear from you tonight in Lexington, Kentucky. It's a conversation about this idea that a lot of within our divisions that a lot of us have that people that voted for somebody else really don't understand the policies. How could you support that candidate? What don't you get about that? And we're talking about this idea of voting against your own interests. You know, Melissa said something I want to pick up on the other side of our very quick break here, and that's this idea of being educated about the issues. Sarah Kenzier, Jeff Guo continue with us. You are listening to Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. Indivisible, 
Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Indivisible from the studios of Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. On Thursdays, I talk about the idea of American identity and zero in on how the way we see ourselves and our connections with one another are being influenced by this political divide that we're spending quite a bit of time talking about. Jeff Guo with us tonight. He covers economics and domestic policy for The Washington Post. And Sarah Kenzie are with us, a writer based in St. Louis, Missouri. Jeff, I, I want to come back to you on this. This uh, I, I, my, I, my attention peaked here when Melissa said um, she used that word educated, because I think that's mm-hmm. something else, a trope that is not fair. Well, if they were educated, these voters that voted for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, even when, you know, they may end up, these policies may might end up hurting them, they wouldn't have made that vote. Did, did you hear, do you hear that, that kind of opinion reflected in some of your reporting? My gosh, all the time. And it reflects, right, the kind of educational divide that we have between the parties right now, where a lot of people who went to college are mostly liberals and people who didn't go to college are mostly not um, and then so you see how that social divide is reflected in some of the political arguments that people tend to have. And so this has become something that liberals love to say, is that, oh, if only you understood, if only you, you know, read all of the explainers that the Post writes about these policies, you know, you, you would see for yourself what was wrong. But I think that what liberals maybe don't understand is that uh, people sometimes vote because people are some are often very willing to sacrifice for things that they believe in, and so um, I, I was reading um, a book by um, the, uh, by Vanessa Williamson, and she's this wonderful political science professor at Harvard, and she has a book out um, on taxes and ho- on how you know Americans are really really proud to pay their taxes, and if you ask people, you know, on the left and the right, they're all very happy to pay taxes. That's not necessarily what they get angry about. What what some people get angry about is this perception that others are not paying their taxes and that uh, that their tax money is going to subsidize all of these others. And so sometimes when they want to cut back on government, they realize that it's going to affect their own situation, but they think it's going to be better for the country as a whole because they don't. They feel like maybe their taxes aren't going to go as much to subsidize other people. Maybe it'll be a little bit fair. And so these notions are what people are thinking about. And it's not always just about me, me, me. There, there's, there's, there's nobility in I, there. Somewhere. I like the idea, and it's interesting that you mentioned taxes, Jeff, because Ryan called from St. Louis, Missouri, where Sarah is, and says, I'm a liberal and I vote for higher taxes to pay for schools, despite the fact that I have no kids. That's also voting against my own self-interest. It happens on both sides. What do you make of this, Sarah, the education piece of this? Um, I don't think that there's really a correlation between education and judgment or education and intelligence for that matter. I think, you know, Trump is uh, well-educated, so perhaps we have a demonstration in that. Um, You know, I I think that credentialism is a real problem uh, that doesn't get addressed that much. You know, in the last 15 to 20 years, we've had incredibly high, um, you know, increase in tuition for uh, higher education and an increase in, uh, you know, credentials in a college degree um, as a prerequisite for getting a job. And that's left a lot of people locked out of the job market and, you know, sort of trapped financially where they can't afford, um, you know, these tuition fees and they, they can't get ahead without it. And 
I think that that's something um, that wasn't really sufficiently, uh, you know, addressed throughout the election. Um, But I think, you know, Trump made, uh, you know, kind of these vague sweeping promises that, um, you know, you didn't need to have uh, this to get ahead, but without, you know, really providing any kind of concrete uh, policy platforms uh, to make that possible. And, you know, unfortunately, we're seeing the results of that play out now. Nicole says on Twitter, I understand the value of life, but why, how could you jeopardize your own child's well-being for someone else's. John says, centrist from rural Ohio. Some Trump voters remain entrenched because it's their guy in the White House. And then uh, Nate is saying here, I think your question misses the point. Some vote the country's interest over their own, which is is what Mm -hmm. Jeff was saying here. Let's go to Cindy in rural Connecticut. Hi, Cindy. Hey, thanks so much for waiting. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. What do you want to say? What are you thinking about? So I live in rural Connecticut. I work in corporate America. I'm a mom of three kids and I voted for Trump. And it's not because I'm not well educated or that all his issues and opinions align with my own. But there were particular issues and reasons that I felt I couldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. And, you know, I'd love to see a woman in the White House. That would be a wonderful example for my daughter. I think often it comes to what's your most important issue and then can you live with the rest? But it, it's sad. You know, I, I'm really disappointed in the country when we're spending so much time bashing each other. Um, I can tell you what I liked about Mr. Trump uh, was the analogy to being on a plane and getting your oxygen mask on. You put yours on first and then you help your children. I think the country, our country, the U.S. soil, we need a lot of help. And You know, Hillary might have been great on the international stage, but I don't know how well she would have done domestically. Uh, You know, I'm I'm curious, Cindy, do you have you had conversations with friends who maybe voted for Clinton and and you've explained yourself? I I wonder how free you feel to talk about this in your own circle of friends. None of my friends know that I voted for Trump unless they're recognizing my voice tonight and listening. (laughs) Okay, but why is that? It's too hard, too hard to be on the defense and to always have to justify. It doesn't feel like it's an open for a conversation. See, Jeff, Cindy, thank you very much. I really appreciate the call. See, Jeff, um, yeah, here's the reason right here for Indivisible, right? Because (laughs) how is it that we feel embarrassed to tell people who we voted for? Because Cindy made a very good case. Yeah, and I I want to tie that into something that Sarah just said earlier that I thought was really insightful. And um, it's this idea of, you know, holding Trump accountable. And that's what we need to look at as we go go forward. And so I remember on the campaign trail, Trump said so much about health care in particular. And he talked about how, you know, we're going to make it better. Obamacare sucks, but we're going to make it better. And your health care is going to be great and all that stuff. And so I think that now in this particular moment, um, there are a lot of people who there are a lot of people who are watching what he's going to do, Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of people voted for Trump and they trusted him that they that he was going to make their health care better. And now looking at all the provisions in the draft of the bill that's circulating, it doesn't seem like it's going to be great for a lot of the people that voted for him. And so I think that 
that this is, you know, part of the great American experiment. Uh, it, it, what is Trump going to do? And is he going to fulfill, make good on his promise to Americans? You know, um, Sarah, Jeff just reminded me as I was listening to him, I was remembering. Do you remember in the debates when um, Secretary Clinton had all these very specific policies and, you know, point number nine and and Donald Trump would say it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be, you know, and there would be these big sweeping generalizations. And I know it drove Democrats crazy because he, he really you wonder, does he have a grasp of the details? Why doesn't that matter? Yeah, um, you know, it bothered me when he did that. And not so much because, you know, he didn't have a grasp of uh, the details. It was because I, I felt that he was lying, um, you know, which are different things. You know, mm-hmm. when you're in a debate, I think it makes sense uh, for a politician to try to keep their message, you know, clear and accessible and simple. So, you know, that that's forgivable. It's the fact that, you know, if you evaluate the decisions that he made throughout his lifetime, um, you never really saw him giving back to communities. You never really saw him, um, you know, helping people outside his family or his inner circle. And so, you know, I personally would have liked to hear, um, you know, something concrete in terms of, you know, how he was going to help people because it's set up, you know, against that um, that backdrop of, of self-involvement. Yeah, you're, you're actually talking about the dissonance of his life experience with what he was saying and who he was uh, appealing to. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's something that was bothering people, Um, you know, not just that he spoke simply. I think that's sort of that's not a great critique to make of him, because I think that can be a very positive thing um, in a candidate. You know, I think there are many politicians whose most memorable speeches are, you know, simple and clear and straightforward. And so that could be a virtue. Um, But when you're lying, when the content of your speech is, you know, cruel or, you know, inaccurate or uh, vindictive, um, you know, that's that's more of a problem, I think. Marilyn in Alabama called. She says, a lot of people in my church voted for Trump. They believed a lot of the nonsense that he said. When I pointed out his behavior, they said, well, he changed. They believe Fox News. They agreed with Trump saying, lock her up. Also, they wanted a change. And that there's kind of the lead of that comment, Jeff. Mm-hmm. People were deeply eager for change. Right. And that is related to why... Trump won some of the same blue-collar counties that Obama won in 2008 Here in Minnesota, too, by the way. In Minnesota. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, And they all felt, and and I think this was downplayed um, later on, but in 2008, Barack Obama really was seen as an agent of change. And a lot of people on the left and the right believed in that. And in 2016, Donald Trump borrowed some of that playbook and he he recognized that people still hungered for change. And so I think that in general, people in, in presidential elections in particular, people vote not completely rationally. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Right. We, we vote according to our values. We it, It's like the greatest expression of our patriotism almost, right? It's, yeah, I was going to say, Jeff, this is why when I use the word emotional and mm. you said, I think that kind of undercut, I, I don't. I, I think we should acknowledge that there is, um, you know, as you said, noble emotion around yeah. this choice. And it is not a cold, uh, you know, purely logical choice. And it shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. You're totally right. Call here from Joshua in Virginia. Hey, Joshua. Hi. Hi. 
Hi. What are you thinking about here? Um, so I've always kind of wanted to respond to this. I listen to NPR a lot, but I'm a conservative who voted for Trump. And mm-hmm. um, just like the lady who called him before, I can't really uh, tell people that. Um, but I do feel very strongly uh, about my support for Donald Trump. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's really funny when people ask and are flabbergasted why they don't understand why people are voting against their self-interest. Well, first of all, like as, as a prerequisite, it's, it's my self-interest. I define for myself uh, subjectively what my self-interest is. And that could mean a lot of things. And I think there's, there's also a difference between a short-term economic self-interest and a long-term economic self-interest. Um, having a low corporate tax rate or having uh, less red tape for small businesses, you know, making it easier for entrepreneurs, those are, those are really good long-term um, strategies mm-hmm. that would benefit me you know, in the long run. And I think a lot of the times these, these long-term um, economic self-interest outweigh the short-term ones. And when we say short-term, I mean, what do we really mean? We mean social programs. We mean increased spending. Um, I, I don't think just because somebody's a blue-collar worker or uh, you know, a, a, you know, struggling economically that they automatically need to be voting for increased social programs. That, you know, I think it's kind of ridiculous to automatically assume um, that's, that that's what somebody would need that, that's you know, in their interest. I think that is really well said, Joshua. I, I can tell you've spent some time thinking about this, and we're eager to talk about it, and I'm glad you heard the show. Uh, let's hear from Scott in North Carolina. Hey, Scott, hi. Hey, how are you doing tonight? Doing well. Glad you heard the show and you could call in. How are you thinking about this? Um, I, I would kind of also echo the previous caller uh, in the fact that, you know, we're, we're not necessarily voting against our self-interest. I think that's where the misunderstanding is. And I think it's a visceral reaction against that sort of thinking about those people who voted Trump that, that really got him to vote. Um, you know, we're not uneducated. We're not voting against our self-interest. We don't believe, I, or I, I believe a vast majority of people who voted for Trump, you know, he says he's going to cut these programs and, and save money in the government. Well, you don't have a lot of faith that the government is being good stewards mm-hmm. of our money. Right. So give it back to us. Yeah. It, it, you know, that is in our self-interest. And it's also, you know, we have also have these actors and stuff like that you know, speaking out against Trump and his, you know, anti-immigrant policy, well, that's, that's very hard to swallow when you're the mom sitting at home and your kid is going to a school where half the day is up by catering to children of illegal immigrants. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, the nobler side of me says, yes, you know, give them an education. They deserve the best we can give them. Got it. But when, when your own kids are suffering at that, and I'm not saying this is worldwide everywhere and, or, or countrywide everywhere, you know, there is, but those are those people are out there, and they're being preached to and, and almost being degenerated for, I mean, I think the word degenerates were actually used, and it's, it's a visceral reaction against that sort of attitude. You I, know. I think that's a lot of it that we're we're missing and overlooking. Yeah, you know, Scott, I, I want to go back to, and I want to take this to Sarah and Jeff, what you said about being stewards, good stewards of the country and of the money, taxpayers' money. I wonder, Sarah, where this intersects with this uh, unprecedented low trust in institutions, including government. Where, where do you think this might meet? 
Um, I mean, I think over the last 15 years, you know, our country's undergone a lot of trauma. We had two wars. We had a recession that, you know, contrary to, you know, popular belief, or at least what was advertised, didn't really end. Um, You know, it certainly didn't end out here in Missouri, where I live. Um, People have been struggling to pay their bills. They've been, you know, living with rising expenses and, you know, wages that don't go up and, you know, houses that do go up. And so, you know, it's it's been a very difficult time that I think is, you know, underestimated. Um, at the same time, though, I think that this elimination of the safety net, um, you know, that so many Republicans are proposing is going to hurt people because exactly of, of what I described, that people are financially in dire straits. I mean, that's why you see this kind of widespread outcry about the health care plan, even among some who voted for Trump, you know, because you need it. You need these things to survive. You need health care. You need, you know, environmental protections for things like, you know, drinking water. And I, I think there's also things people are, are worried about losing, um, you know, social programs like Meals on Wheels, for instance, that have been cut. So, you know, that this worries me because I do feel like um, we've we've been through a hard time. You know, that aspect, at least Trump was able to articulate and articulate um, in terms of solutions, though, I, I don't think he's uh, heading in the right direction for all Americans. Jeff, I have about a minute, but I'd love to hear you on this. I think Another thing we have to think about that, you know, the caller brought up was it's not sometimes it's not about voting against your own interest. It's about voting against other people's interests who you don't feel deserve government support or mm-hmm. things like that. And that's a theme that was very uh, huge in the past election. It's a theme that that conservative outlets like Fox News talk about a lot as well. You're listening to Indivisible, and it's a conversation tonight about this idea, this discussion that we've been having about voters who, from the outside looking in, appear to have voted against their own self-interest. And we've we've used quite a few examples tonight. I want to hear from you. If you're in a in a red state or a red county and you've heard this and maybe you're one of those voters that supported President Trump, maybe it's something that you don't necessarily confide to your friends Talk to us about this tonight, this idea of your interest, 844-745-8255. You can reach me on Twitter at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use that hashtag, Indivisible Radio. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're hearing Indivisible on Thursday nights from the studios of Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. When I opened the show, I talked about the health care bill and voters in Kentucky. And I just want to let you know about uh, an update here. The uh, White House is now saying to Congress, no more negotiations time to vote. And when we got on the air, the House was talking about voting at uh, 9 a.m. Eastern time, 8 a.m. Central time tomorrow morning. And the White House, again, sending that message to Congress saying it is time to vote 
on this health care bill. Our guest tonight, Jeff Guo, covers economics and domestic policy for The Washington Post. And Sarah Kenzior is a cultural anthropologist and a writer based in Missouri. Uh, I wanted to ask you both here before we go back to the to the phone lines. You know, you hear me saying that we zero in on identity on Thursday nights. And I was thinking that You know, when factories close and they take jobs and they take community assets that can't be supported because the jobs aren't there, the very identity of a place, you know, and a community changes. And Sarah, I wonder if you've seen this in your reporting and Jeff, if you've seen this in your we're talking more about a wider uh, identity here. Jeff, maybe you'd weigh in first on that. Well, I think you you see it in in people's health and their and their well-being. Um, and that was a big point um, in a paper that was just released today by these Princeton economists, Anne Case and Angus Deaton. And they're the ones who pointed out that uh, middle-aged white Americans are actually dying faster than they were before, which is astonishing because in every other rich country, people are dying less and less. Um, and it's some, something completely different is happening for for middle-aged white Americans in particular. And they, they looked a lot at the data, and what they came up with is they found that it wasn't, it wasn't just about income, but it was about, and this was really concentrated among people uh, with less than a, a bachelor's degree. So these are people who really were hit hardest by the economy of the last 30 years. Um, and, and these economists, they believe that a lot of it has to do with losing pr- a sense of purpose and losing mm-hmm. a sense of hope. Um, and that's what's driving the opioid epidemic. And that's what's driving uh, this, this rise in the number of suicides. Um, and, and that's what's driving this rise in deaths from alcoholism is this sense that uh, what is life's not getting better anymore. Sarah, what, what do you see of this idea of a community's identity being affected um, by this? Well, I think, you know, you need to look at uh, different communities in different places. Like, I'm in St. Louis, uh, you know, which is certainly a city that has had a lot of factory closures over the past 40 or so years. Uh, This is not a recent phenomenon. And, you know, I think one misconception that we get when we talk about uh, factory workers or people who worked in manufacturing is that they're white. Um, You know, there are plenty of people who aren't. You know, St. Louis is a primarily black city, you know, who also suffered job loss, who also suffered, you know, economic loss, who are dealing with low-wage jobs now, and who did not uh, vote for Trump. And, you know, and they didn't see him as a solution to their problems. And so I think, you know, kind of reducing, you know, these economic issues that have to do with, uh, you know, jobs for people who don't have a lot of education or who worked in manufacturing, you know, equating that with a desire to vote for Trump is not entirely accurate um, because it really does come down to a racial divide. Uh, Terry in Hot Springs, Arkansas, called to say that he voted for Trump. And he says a lot of people down here are raised to stay away from government programs and they're more self-reliant. And Dave uh, in Minnesota says this conversation misses the point. People don't want government allowing people to get in line in front of them. Also, people voting the way they do are allowing culture to take precedent over economic interests. And once more here from Matthew in Atlanta, my parents would have benefited from voting for Trump because they're wealthy, but they voted for Hillary because they thought it was the right thing to do, even if they have to pay more in taxes to Stephen in North Carolina. Hi, Stephen. Hey, thanks for having me on your show. Of course. Tell me how you're thinking about this. Uh, well, uh, I, I do really enjoy the discussion in terms of 
uh, trying to open up the dialogue between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, I'm a 24-year-old millennial, and I did vote for Trump, uh, mostly for economical reasons. I'm, I'm hoping that he would deliver on that promise, but um, I, I didn't tell a lot of my friends how I voted because uh, a lot of them uh, would, I, I, I would say they voted Democrat, and they, anytime I say, hey, I'm thinking about voting for Trump, or I just try to open up a conversation about it just to talk about it, I would almost immediately be judged, and it, it's, uh, it was really sad we couldn't even have a conversation about it. I, just, I felt like they were completely condescending about it. Has that changed at all, Stephen, now that we're 60-some days out or not? No, I, I, I think uh, a lot of them are, are, you know, to a certain degree, still not wanting to have a conversation about it, like the, uh, the State of the Union. Um, I have a couple of friends in my, uh, my class at school, and I, and I know they're Democrats, and I'm saying, well, what did you think about the, uh, the address that he just gave to Congress? And they wouldn't even watch it. Good to have your call, Stephen. Glad you caught the show. Jeff, um, I don't know if you caught this. There there was an interesting article in Salon this week that was headlined, The Smug Style in American Liberalism. And the writer Connor Lynch wrote this. Some liberals have basically given up on appealing to these perceived yokels who seem to care more about criminalizing abortion and hoarding guns than obtaining health care and decent wages. Now, the point of the article was clearly, you know, your smug liberalism isn't going to get you where you think you want to be, Democrats. I mean, it was a, it was I, I read it as a warning. What do you make of that? I've heard that argument so many times <laughs> just in this past election. And you know what? Part of it is that the the Internet, I don't want to blame the Internet, but the Internet does one thing really well, and it brings together a lot of different points of view. And as we saw in this past election, what happens is you see the most extreme views on one side collide with the most extreme views on the other side. And then you see people calling out liberals for being smug. And you see people calling out rural Trump voters for being, uh, I don't not knowing anything or or, or not being with it. right. Or being uneducated, right. And so it it makes it, if you have a stereotype already inside you um, or inside your mind, uh, it becomes really easy to find examples of that on the Internet. So easy. And that, I think that's part of the problem. That's what that article speaks to. Sarah, what do you say to that? Um, I'm not seeing, you know, a lot of smug. I mean, I, yeah, I do see smugness. But in terms of people, you know, I encounter in my everyday life and in terms of just the general, um, you know, feeling that I get in this country, you know, I see basically two things, which is pain um, as a result of the policies we've dealt with for the last 15 years of, you know, the wars, the recession, um, you know, a lot of uh, civic strife. And I see fear about, um, you know, rapid changes and how we think of our democracy and what kind of rights people have and how we interact with each other, you know, and in this erosion of trust. And some of that plays into, you know, these stereotypes and, you know, people prejudging each other, uh, imagining they understand the reasons for people's votes or for people's behavior without bothering to ask them uh, details of their lives. But, you know, I think we're kind of the the smugness, um, I think, was maybe something we saw during the election. And then afterwards, I think, most people are are struggling, um, you know, whether they're Democrats, Republicans or, or neither, uh, just to make sense of our new reality, to see where we're going to go as a country, to see what kind of, um, you know, rights we're going to have and what kind of benefits we're going to have and, and what will be taken away. So it's a time of uneasiness. Um, and I, I don't think smugness goes all that well with it.
Uh, if you're having a hard time getting in on the phone lines, very busy lines, you can always get in on Twitter uh, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, and then use that hashtag Indivisible Radio, trying to get to as many tweets as I can. Tyler says, my family who voted for Trump felt left behind by liberal policies and Trump promised to help them catch up to the phones here to Lauren in Mason, Ohio. Hey, Lauren, I know it's been a while. I'm so glad you waited. Thank you. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. What are you thinking about here? So I am in a very Republican area in the state of Ohio, in Warren County. Uh Um, And I have a lot of family members who are also Republican. And the question, I'm a liberal, I did not vote for Donald Trump. Um, So the question I've been wanting to ask, but can't quite do it because how interesting things are, um, is should we be we all have to be able to you know, sleep with ourselves at night and, and, and be able to live with ourselves. But isn't there a way to support your maybe one moral issue without sacrificing everything else in order to in order to support that issue? So, yes, voting is, you know, one of those things that we all get to do to support the issues we want. But instead of voting um, against yourself or against something that you really need, um, just to support one issue that you really feel passionately about. Aren't there other ways that you could support that issue? Okay, well, I'm not sure I understand completely what you're saying. Give me an example, if you can, Lauren. Yeah, so, for example, supporting um, people that are say that they are pro-life okay. and that they're voting specifically for that. Um However, at the same time, they might, you know, lose their lose their health care or they might feel strong about the environment. But now that, you know, because of where we're at, the EPA is going down the drain. Mm-hmm. And so aren't there ways to support that pro-life movement without, you know, without sacrificing a whole bunch of other things with your vote? OK, good, good description. So, Jeff, what would you say about that? I mean, it's hard to it's hard to say what matters to people, right? right? It's I would be I would get really upset if someone told me, "No, you can't vote that way because it'll be really bad for you in X, Y, and Z ways." But I would say, "Well, I don't care because A, B, and C matter more to me." Um but one thing that I was thinking about was uh how sometimes we we still all don't really maybe have all the facts. And, and there's one um, study that I have in mind in particular that I thought was really interesting. And it's, it's just a survey showing that, you know, you remember that, you know, Muslims and immigration, these were huge issues mm-hmm. um, in the election. But when you ask people, how many, how many immigrants do you think we have in the United States? How many Muslim immigrants do you think we have? How many uh, Latino, immig- how many Mexican immigrants do we have? do you think we have? And consistently, people get this number wrong. And they think there are many, many more than there actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can see that it's, on one hand, it's important that people vote how they feel and vote according to their values. But on the other hand, we all have facts that we don't quite um, know or that, that kind of get blown out of proportion in our minds. And maybe I think maybe that's what um, uh, that's related to what Sarah was getting at. Yeah. So, Lauren, I want to come back to you. Does that make sense to you, Lauren in Ohio? Yes. I mean, I I understand everybody has those issues that are really important to them, um, but it just feels counterintuitive to me if you know that you're going to lose your food stamps and you rely on those. You know, couldn't, couldn't you support the moral issue that you are voting for in a ton of other ways while, you know, not, not, um, 
uh, threatening uh, your own survival. But, but, but let me ask you this then. Don't you think that maybe some people would think of that as a noble choice? Like, I believe in this issue so much that I'm willing to give up my food stamps. I'm willing to give up all the government programs that, I support, that, 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 that support me because I believe in this so much. Don't you think that there's, some people might feel that that's a worthy sacrifice? They certainly might. Um, I mean, I've, they, they certainly might feel that way, and everybody's entitled to, you know, to their vote. But that's just a question that I've, I've wanted to ask, but I just live in a, in a situation where I can't. Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you could ask it here. Sarah, what would you say to that? Um, I mean, I think this issue in particular, you know, that the first caller brought up of abortion is is unique in that, you know, people tend to have very, very strong views um, on it. You know, if they're pro-life, if they think that it's murder, uh, it's it's hard to convince people that, you know, like in my own case, with my my relatives who feel that way, uh, you know, my sister is able to convince them not to vote for Trump by bringing up, you know, what the Pope had said, uh, or at least hinted in, in you know, relation to this election and sort of arguing it on theological grounds, which is not necessarily how you would, you know, think you would convince somebody to argue, you know, an American political thing. So when you bring religion into it, um, when you bring abortion into it, you're in kind of a unique situation because everybody has a, you know, a particular vantage point that, um, you know, is, is deep inside them. It's also often something they were brought up with. They cannot imagine deviating from that. And I think other issues um, are a lot more flexible. I think that in in many cases, people will, uh, you know, reconsider on those. Bobby says on Twitter, as a liberal in a red state, I have to be careful who I tell that I strongly dislike Trump. Jeff, I, I see, I'm not surprised to hear this because all along, since we've been doing Indivisible, I've been hearing from people on the show who say I would never tell, you know, my circle of friends about this. Do you <laughs> do you hear that in, in some of your reporting? Well, um, you know what? If they're happy talking to a reporter about it, I think at that point they're uh, maybe comfortable talking to others what? about it. I, really? Because they're calling a national <laughs> call-in show and saying, this is me. If they recognize my voice, they'll know, but I've never said it before. <laughs> you know, ma'am, what's the spelling of your name? Could you just let, let me know so I can get it right for the paper? Nah. Exactly. Let, I want to grab a call here from Michael in Illinois. Hey, Michael, Hi. Hi, Carrie. Jeff, Sarah, I'm glad to hear from all of you. I'm, I'm liking the conversation. I'm liking the way it's going. Tell Thank me you. about yourself. Uh, presently, I'm a trucker. Mm-hmm. I am educated, and you can detect a tone in that as well. But uh, I'm a trucker. I'm a veteran, uh, and I voted for Trump. And why? I'm just, as I told your screener, because... And to utilize the phrase, America first. I, I think that a lot of people grabbed onto that for the fact that we don't feel as though we are placing ourselves first. It's not to be an individual first. It's to be a country first. And I, the majority of the voters that I had spoken to that voted for Trump, their pretense was, yes, we believe in all of us having been immigrants, we believe in this country. Let's invest in this country going in a direction that we want to see it in a positive sense. And, and so, Michael, with a lot of the 
let's say that a lot of the chaos that has accompanied the first 60 some days of the administration, are you still satisfied because you still see the president talking about putting America first, that 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 principle for you still remains most important? Yes, I would say, so. as, as I believe my mother would say, when you make vegetable soup, sometimes it looks like a mess because everything's happening all at one time. <laughs> but when you take that bite, it's good. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Um, what do you think um, what do you think Trump could be doing better? Do you think he's making good on his promises? I believe he's and I'm not going to say all of his promises. Mm-hmm. Again, he's he's a talker. He knew what to do going through the, the whole process. He knew how to talk to the base. He knew how to motivate them. He knew what to say. Now, whether he and argumentatively with the AHCA, he's going to be able to say, I tried. No matter what the end result is, he's going to be able to say, I tried. Like I said, it's, it's already been placed on Ryan's lap. So... I mean, it, even if it were to wash, meaning wash out, he will have put his effort in. So, and that's what everybody's looking at. We're tired of being told one thing and then later finding out that wasn't the truth. And we can go back to the Benghazi thing. We can go back to whatever and bring those points up, which stirred a lot of the emotions of what you're speaking about for the fact that people said, okay, I didn't trust the government that much. I trust them a lot less now. Yeah. Michael, um, can't think of a better call to end on. Uh, really good to know that you're you're out there riding the roads and you're listening to public radio and you had a chance to call in. Thanks very much. Jeff, really appreciate the time and the insight from your reporting. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Sarah, thank you so much for your, your reporting and your contributions to the conversation. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. And this is Indivisible from Minnesota Public Radio. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.